Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. How do you know if you've been baptised in the Spirit? Because I'm, I'm telling you, if you've been born again, that moment, chances are very good. You may not know the precise moment when the Spirit of God came into you and put the seed of God in you and caused you to be born again. Dr. Corbett has set aside some time to help us become more acquainted with the Holy Spirit. So let me hit you with the big question. What's your view on the baptism with the Holy Spirit? It's been quite the topic for discussion at various times in church history. So tonight, let's look at the evidence. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for the third in his Holy Spirit series. Tonight, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, have your way in our midst. Father, may there be things spoken that only those here and watching now have ever said in private with no one else around. May things be said that only you know about. May you now confirm your word with signs in the hearts of your people, with things that will cause them to wonder. May there be physical, emotional, spiritual confirmation of your word now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. All right, so this could get weird. Let's have a look. This month I've been embarking on a series about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Jesus. These are synonyms for this person. And so far we have seen that the Holy Spirit is a person. Therefore, we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it because the Holy Spirit is He. He is a divine person who possesses all of the attributes of the Father. I remember hearing when I was uh, a young person who had recently come to Christ. I, my, my life was surrendered to Christ at the age of 15. I'd been brought up in a church all my life, literally all my life. Even before I was birthed and after I was conceived, I was in church. And it wasn't until I was about 15 that the lights went on and I realised what this was all about and, it, and my life was transformed. And then a short time after that, I began to realise it's not an event it's a journey it's not an event once and done one and done it's not giving your life to Christ is the start of a whole new journey and when I realized that I in my heart cried out I want to come on this journey I want to go on this journey I want to be who you have created me to be and the Holy Spirit has played a pivotal intersection in my understanding of what it means to live with Christ I heard, as a young man, I heard someone say this, if you want to seek to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, if you want the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life, you will rarely feel him. But what you will experience is a sense that you have spent time with Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will take those things which are mine and make them real to you. John 14, 15 and 16. So we've seen that along with the Father, the Holy Spirit has always been co-existent with God the Son. Now the reason I'm saying this is because there are some who think that in the Old Testament, God manifested as the Father. And then in the Gospels, God manifested as Jesus the Son. And after Jesus ascended, some think that this one 
person, this one God manifested as the Holy Spirit. That's not true. And we know that's not true because at the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus go into the water. We hear the voice of the Father. How do we know it was the Father? Because he said, this is my son. You join the dots. And then the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. So we see Father, Son and Holy Spirit simultaneously, keyword coexisting father son and holy spirit we see that one of the attributes of god is eternality he's always been that's what we mean by he's always been coexistent he's eternally coexistent the bible actually describes him as eternal for example we have here in mark 3:29 this statement whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin the word eternal sin and this this might be worth just unpacking just briefly you are only guilty of an eternal sin if you sin against someone who is eternal if i offend you and if i haven't offended you yet you just haven't been in this church long enough i'm guessing it's a temporal offense it's a temporal sin perhaps depending on the nature of the offence. It could just be that you're thin-skinned. Don't be offended by that. And if you are, that just proves my point. But if you sin against an eternal God, the sin has eternal consequences, Jesus says. Mark 3 verse 29. Which, by the way, sort of kiboshes the idea that why would God ever condemn someone for eternity for a sin committed in a very short period of time because if the sin is against the eternal God the consequences are eternal and we have this this embedded into our justice system as well by the way how long does it take to murder someone and I, I, I don't want to convict anyone here if you have murdered someone recently or maybe I should but how long would it take to murder someone sometimes it happens in the heat of a moment and what are the consequences of that momentary action of wrongness a lifetime in prison or if you live in Texas hasta la vista baby so we have Jesus saying the consequences of interacting in a sinful way against the Holy Spirit are eternal we have the writer to the Hebrews saying this in Hebrews 9 14 speaking of Christ how much more will the blood of Christ who through notice this the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God notice a couple of things we, we see here about the Holy Spirit one he is called eternal he's always been like there was never a, a time when he was not he has always been that's that's eternal no beginning no end a constant now but we also see that he takes what the blood of Christ when Christ shed his blood on that cross it wasn't just molecules of plasma dripping out of his body it had deep and profound spiritual significance and it says that it is the spirit of God that takes the effect of what Christ has done and cleanses us from dead works that's good news by the way that is really good news what do we know about the Holy Spirit's interaction with us I hope that we've seen so far as we've looked at this that the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus when he ascended. And when he ascended, 
The Spirit was sent to do a work in the life of the redeemed, the redeemed, those who God has rescued. And this is called, I'm going to use this word, it's a word used twice in the New Testament. The word is regeneration. Regeneration. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment because it's so important that we understand this. Because during the recent US presidential election, I heard some amazing statements by different candidates claiming to be Christian. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because your parents were a Christian doesn't mean you are. To be a Christian is a spiritual transaction. And the big word that I've just used is the word that describes what happens in that moment. It's regeneration. And I'm going to use some terminology in a moment which is going to sound to some a bit crass. But it's the description that the Bible itself uses. And I'll, I'll make this point in a moment. When does a human life begin? I said before, quite intentionally, that I've been going to church all my life. Literally. All, then I made, I made this comment. I, went to ch- I was going to church even before I was born. And some of you think, what? And I meant when from the moment I was conceived. And I was, according to my mother... A miracle baby. Um, I'm not sure that she felt that after I was born. But anyway, so since Christ ascended, finished his work on the cross, rose from the dead, spent 40 days with the believers, he then ascended. Before he did, we read in John 21 that he breathed on the disciples and he said this, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. All right, so today... I want to talk about one of the most significantly powerful things that the Holy Spirit does in the redeemed. We've seen that the Holy Spirit regenerates. That's the word I've just used. I'm going to talk about that in a moment again. But we've also seen that the Holy Spirit will fill. We've seen in the Old Covenant the Holy Spirit came upon people. Now I want to show you that the Spirit of God also comes to baptise baptism of the Holy with the Holy Spirit and here we go God do what only you can do in this time Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 John the Baptist says this I baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire the Holy Spirit and fire this verse will be cited in all four Gospels, which is unusual because not all four Gospels have things that they all say, but they all say this. We also see that in Acts, which is the follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, that Luke repeats what he said in his Gospel, and he says this in Acts 1.5. For John baptised you with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now here's the the thing that I want to to point out because the moment we begin to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit there's going to be a number of people who've got different ideas of what that looks like and I want to I want to let people know that I understand the views I understand the different ways of looking at it and then I want to make a case for what the Bible teaches what are some of the different ways that the expression baptism with the Holy Spirit baptism in the Holy Spirit is used here's a view called the cessationist view It says essentially this, and it's based on 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, which makes a reference that says this, when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect, such as the things of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, those things will be done away with. Those things will be done away with. And cessationists believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, have ceased. That's where the word cessationist comes from. Ceased. And they believe that which is perfect is the completion of the canon of the New Testament. Canon means the 27 books of the New Testament. Once, once that was given, they argue, the gifts of the Spirit were no longer necessary. That's the cessationist view. Let's go up the other end of the spectrum. Another view. I'm calling this the revivalist view of the baptism with the Spirit. Now this may not make sense internationally, but it does in Australia. Let me explain why. There was a group of churches that started in the 1950s, early 19, or late 1950s, early 1960s called the Revivalist Church. And they believe this, they teach this. Not only are they completely opposite to the cessationists, they believe that unless you've been baptised with the Holy Spirit, unless you have gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, you aren't even saved. That's their view. We, there, there are splinter groups, there are breakaway groups, even in our city, who hold this particular view. I've heard both of these views, and I don't agree with either of them. Not because... I've been indoctrinated to believe a certain thing. It's because I want to be faithful to Scripture and I hope I can show you what Scripture teaches. So here's another view. It's called the Pentecostal view about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal view says this. You don't need to be baptised in the Holy Spirit to be saved. Your salvation is because of a work of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. That is being born again. And it's only the Spirit of God who can do that in you. Pentecostals don't believe what the revivalists teach. They don't say you have to be baptised with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and have gifts of the Spirit to demonstrate that you're saved. You don't, that, that's not the biblical position either. Pentecostals believe you can give your life to Christ and then there's another work of the Holy Spirit available. And that other work of the Holy Spirit available, the term used is a subsequent, and in other words it comes after, subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit I want to give you the evidence the biblical evidence for the subsequent view of the baptism with the Holy Spirit one of my favorite theologians and I'm sure we all have one is N.T. Wright I really appreciate N.T. Wright he was the Anglican Bishop of Durham and now he's based I believe in Edinburgh at, at, at uh, University of Edinburgh as a an emeritus professor of theology I believe he was coming to take up his position at, at um, Durham. And he was nervous. And he met, uh, he was, he'd just done a stint in America teaching over there and he was coming to take up his position in the UK. And he saw uh, a lady that he knew and they got chatting and she said, so what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm moving back to England. He is an Englishman. I'm moving back to England and I'm taking up the position Bishop of Durham, it's right near a university and I'm really, really nervous about it because I'm going to be right near the university. There's lots of really, really smart kids who are going to make life very, very difficult for me and I, I'm, I'm not sure I can handle it. And this lady said to him, 
it sounds like you need the help of the Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, absolutely. Not realizing that when he said that, she said, let's pray now, shall we? In the airport, let's pray now. (laughs) And so she just prayed for him that he would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright, one of the most highly regarded theologians in the world, began to pray in tongues for the first time in his life. He was, I believe, in his late 50s, early 60s, which is, according to my children, really, really old. And he experienced something that for a long time he had thought was not possible. Because I'm guessing he'd been a part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit. That happened back in Bible times, but it doesn't happen now. And he experienced it in an airport in America and continues to pray in tongues, he says, every day. That's interesting. So what's the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming subsequent to salvation? Number one, regeneration. There's that word I said I was going to use. Regeneration is a distinct and unique work of the Holy Spirit, probably associated with the ascension of Christ. Here's the point. When a child is conceived, um, there's not... There's not full awareness in that child's heart and mind that, that they've been conceived. I'm, I'm guessing, I can't give you the data on it, because it's very, very difficult to survey a zygote, if you understand what I'm saying. But I want you to see this, I want you to see what I'm saying here. It's a, it's a moment of sweet, soft tenderness that happens in a person's soul. I've heard people say, getting saved is like being struck with lightning. It wasn't for me. Was it for you? you? You might even have someone say, when were you saved? And I'm, I'm going to guess that there are many people here going, I don't exactly know when. And that I'm trying to show you the correlation between being conceived naturally and being conceived spiritually. It's a gentle moment where it's not finished. Something begins to unfold, but something's happened. Something's happened. In Titus 3.5, he uses the word regeneration. One of two places it's used specifically in the Greek. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. Renewal of the Spirit. So it's a newness of the Spirit that happens. Secondly, regeneration is likened to being born again which commences at conception, not birth. Jesus answered Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How about Ephesians 2, 5? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, the Holy Spirit, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm wanting to, to just, I've got one more scripture to show you, which may shock you to make this point that the conception, that, that what, what God does in you to save you is a, tran- it's a transformation. Things begin to change and they change quickly. But that moment that where it begins to change can often go undetected. How about this one? 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed. And I've got the Greek word there so you can get this. God's seed. See the Greek word? 
It's conception language. It's not plant seed. It's conception language. The Greek word is sperma. Abides in him. God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, the trajectory of your life from that moment of spiritual conception, being born again, where God has done something in your soul, you begin to, as Denise alluded to, it's not that you become perfect, it's that you begin to realise you're not perfect. You begin to realise your trajectory is now different. The third evidence that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes after salvation is that the Holy Spirit is distinguished as a sub, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinguished as a separate experience in the book of Acts, for example, and there's many. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria, that part of the land of Canaan or Israel's territory, kind of in the middle that every Jew avoided. They wouldn't go to Samaria. Well, Philip did because the gospel of the new covenant, the new birth, what the Spirit of God would do in a soul was not just for Jews, it was for all people. And it says this, when, that when he went there, he preached Jesus and the Samaritans. Now, why would the Samaritans go, Jesus, we've heard of Jesus. Why would they have done that? You remember John chapter 4? Woman at the well from Samaria. She goes into some, back into Sikor, the village in Samaria, and she tells everybody about Jesus. Jesus comes and they hear for themselves about Jesus. Then Philip goes up there and they go, we're in. And they receive Jesus. And this is what he does. He baptizes them in water because that's a public sign of what's happened on the inside. It's an outside sign of, of, of what God has done. It's when you go into the water. And I'm standing on our baptism uh, tank now. And I hope by the end of the month, we will be baptizing as well. And people symbolically go into that water to say, this is my old way of life. I'm burying it. It's dead. It's gone. And they come up out of the water, picture being cleansed, but, but new, raised to a new way of living. So Philip went there. They received Jesus. Notice what the text says. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Note that, had received or heard the word of God, it's a, a way of saying they received Christ. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he, capital H, the Holy Spirit, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. They'd received Christ, they'd been baptised, but they hadn't been baptised with the Holy Spirit. What happened? Next verse. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If we were to read on in the text, we would find out how that was so obvious because Simon the sorcerer, who was an, a, a, a resident of that town, heard and saw what happened. And he came to Peter and said, I will pay you money if you can teach me how to do that trick. And that didn't go well for him. Evidence number four. It's from the epistles. That 
there were clearly some regenerated, that is born again, believers who had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? If you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is trying to correct a problem. And the problem was this. Some people were baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking and praying and prophesying in tongues and making those who didn't have that feel inferior. I'll tell you now, as one of my pastoral hearts is in teaching a series, that, that that is not the way I make anyone feel. I do not want people to feel that they are less of a Christian because they haven't got some spiritual gift. But that's what was going on in Corinth. Now what does that tell us? There were believers there, people who were born again, but they had not received the gifts of the Spirit. Do all possess gifts of healing? Paul goes on, do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, he says. Evidence number five. For those who love the Old Testament, you'll appreciate this. Typology is where there is something that happens in the Old Testament that is actually a visual picture of what Christ would one day do. The Old Testament calls, well, we, we refer to that as typology. The typology of the Leviticus 23 feasts, there's seven of them mentioned, distinguish atonement, that is our salvation, which brings regeneration, from the day of Pentecost. For example, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So we celebrate a communion. The very thing that we celebrated is actually a resemblance of that communion, of the Passover, sorry, the Passover. And it speaks of Christ giving of his body and giving of his blood. We partake of it. It's a picture of saying we've now received what the Holy Spirit has done in us and we do this as a, a visual outward demonstration of what we believe God has done in us. That's Passover. Taking of communion doesn't save you. This is a it's a visual demonstration of what we believe has already happened. So that's, that's a separate feast. That was a feast of Israel. happened every year. Here's another one that happened. You shall count 50 days after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a flour. They shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And it goes on in that passage and says, you count 50 days. And that 50 days is where we get the word Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. So the Feast of Pentecost was a separate event. And the, the, the point there, you, you'll bake bread with leaven. What did leaven represent? It, represent those, it represented those who were sinful or non-Jewish, non-Hebrews. And here, this, this was... You know, when we talk about, it says bake a loaf of bread, it's not like um, crips, it's like dominoes. You got the picture, that was the Jewish bread. But now you put leaven in it, and there had to be two. And the priest had to hold up these two round discs of bread and eclipse them on the day of Pentecost. Now the point there is that that was a picture that they didn't even realise they were saying the day is coming when God will take Jew and Gentile and make them one on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, that is exactly what began to happen. And that shows 
that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not what saves you. It's not simultaneous to your salvation. It's a separate subsequent experience to your salvation. And here's number six, evidence number six. The experience and testimony of millions of believers down through the ages who have said, I gave my life to Christ. And then after that, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit and something else happened. And I suspect there are probably people who are right here now and you could say, that happened to me. But how about this? This is from uh, research from Cornell University, which Wikipedia, I've just given you the, the glimpse here, Wikipedia say, today there are 279 million Pentecostals in the world. People who say, I was born again, then I was baptised with the Holy Spirit. Something happened. 279. If you read my e-news article this week, The Eastward Spirit, I talk about charismatics and Pentecostals, kind of similar beliefs. And if you combine those two groups, according to uh, Cornell University, you then end up with just over, in fact, what is the number? 584 million people in the world today. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, but my recollection of 584 million is that that's a lot of people. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or a premium download of tonight's discussion, I invite you to visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Holy Spirit Part 3 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, baptism of the Holy Spirit has been the experience of millions of believers down through the ages and has a number of evidences in the believer's life, including a desire and a boldness to witness for Christ to others. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Holy Spirit series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.